Ossert would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and any First Nations people listening today. We also want to acknowledge that these lands have always been places of learning and sharing of information, and that is the essence of this podcast. Welcome to the Ossert Podcast, Share Today, Save Tomorrow. I'm your host, Anthony Caruana, and this month, for a change, we're going to start with a chat between Beck and I. And we're going to talk a bit about the Ossert Conference for 2023 and the 30th anniversary of Ossert. After that, I'll be chatting with Martin McGregor from Devicey about mobile device security and why the Essential 8 applies to mobile devices. So... This is a very rare moment where the co-hosts of Share Today, Save Tomorrow, me and my good friend Beck, are actually in the same place at the same time doing this. So how are you doing today, Beck? I'm great. This is so wonderful. We're normally um, ships in the night via email and exchanging <laughs> notes. So this is great. Yeah. So we're actually, um, we don't normally say where we are when we're doing the podcast because we're not sure when things are going to release. But obviously this is the May issue of the podcast for season two. And we are actually at the conference. We are indeed. So, and it's the 30th anniversary of Ossert's founding. So it's a pretty big event this time around. Like, what does that actually mean? Like the, the vibe of the conference is just amazing. Um, the vibe at dinner was fantastic. And it was, you know, award winners and all that sort of stuff was going on. But what does 30 years of Ossert really mean? Like, what does it mean to the market and to the world? I feel like we've just thrown the biggest birthday party ever. But <laughs> um, no, it's really nice for us. Um, as Ossert, we want to celebrate with our community. That that's the whole essence of Ossert, right? We're, we're not an organisation that stands alone. It's all about this community that we have built with our members and all the people we work with day to day and our supporters. So for us, it was so exciting to, to celebrate that all through the conference with you know, presentations from people that have known us for most of those 30 years and, yeah. and relationships that we've had with different parts of, of this organisation as well. So for me, it's just been about seeing those familiar faces and seeing everyone catching up and it's like a family reunion of sorts. And, and it's funny you say that because when you you had um, you had a bit of a party a few weeks ago in Brisbane and, you know, there was, um, you had the, the alumni of OzCert show up, like you had people who'd been either at the organisation at the beginning or for very long periods of time through its formative years, you know, as it grew up from being a toddler into early childhood, now into, you know, I guess now it's probably, you know, 30. It's probably a bit of a sensible grown-up. Um, it's oh, gone it's through trying all those, to be. It's trying to be. <laughs> but, I mean, it's gone through all these stages. But the people who are there, like, there's a real feeling of, I don't know, connectedness and passion where people don't... People don't leave. People may leave Ozert the organisation, but they never leave Ozert the spirit. Yes, there's a little piece of Ozert that sticks with people, and, and everyone wants us to succeed. And they they they're keen to know what's happening and, and how we're doing. And a lot of our, our staff members that have left us over years are members, or they you know mm. there there is still ways that we work in together, which is really nice. And I love that there is that love. You know, I, I was talking to people at the event going. Why are people here? You know, I, I worked for this organisation in the past. I wouldn't go to a party with them. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was really lovely that people still have that heart of us, and it's in your blood. I think it's I think it's that not for profit helping each other. There's that sort of moral compass that kind of binds us all together. Yeah. So it, it no, it's it's really special, and and we've got even more of them again at the conference because we've got a whole lot of ex 
Oxford alumni that are presenting yeah. on organisations now that have come from interstate. So I feel like the party just continued. So when we kind of look now at the last, you know, the last 30 years, obviously Oxford's made a very significant contribution to the cybersecurity environment in Australia and the industry at large. What would be sort of like the maybe the three or four things that over that time you say, when people look back and say, well, what difference did OzCert make? What are sort of like maybe the two or three, maybe four things that kind of stand out and you go, that's been, you know, when we think about OzCert, that's the contribution it's made. Wow, that's a tough one, Anthony. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 yeah, we call ourselves the pioneers, which I think is really accurate at this moment. You know, we, we were at, there at the very beginning when I, uh, you know, our humble beginnings were literally a student hacking into NASA. Hmm. That's just bizarre when you think about it in today's world. You know, there was no, no internet connections in every household or let alone in every hand or in every phone. Mm. So I think it's just been, it's really about being that central point that people knew they could come to for help and, and knowing that if there was anything that they didn't know, even if it wasn't instant, they just wanted advice. It was, it was this line that they could ring and, and, and get that support from our team. I mean, the NASA story is just amazing, isn't it? I mean, do, I don't know. Does everyone actually know the story? You know, do you want to, can you do the story very quickly? <laughs> yes. My, my TLDR version of the story is uh, we got contacted by, well, I wasn't there, I should say. I've not been at Well, you're only in primary school. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so, yeah, the university was contacted by NASA because they could track that this student had hacked into a launch and delayed it. So there was like big impact at the time. So it was essentially the US government saying, Australia, get your shit together. Watch what the students are doing on the internet. <laughs> so no, not a surprise that it was the students experimenting. I don't think they set out to, you know, it wasn't an activist kind of act, but it was very much about experimenting and seeing what they could get into and, and how far they could go. And I can imagine those these students, they would have started with the little networks on campus, you know, in these labs and things, and then found this and went, can I get in? Yes, I can. So it was like real life war games. It's like, you know, Matthew Broderick was there and, and trying to launch, you know, trying to do something. It was Absolutely. almost that. It was like that. Yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, there, there are a lot of people that have been involved in OSCERT over the years. And I know, you know, for example, we have Bill Cayley, who's like the, the grandfather of cyber in Australia. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's some people that have just been through there through the whole journey. You know, I think David's been the um, the director of OSCERT now for how many? It's been the, He's been there five five years yeah. and you know um, Mike Holmes been there for a long time you've been there now I think it's a dozen years or something like that getting Almost, on to yes. <laughs> you know um, and that that kind of talks a lot too because it's not like it's a revolving door where people no. come and go like people come and you know they set they, they really do make it into a home almost or a place where they don't just work but they kind of you know thrive yeah I think the difference with Osset is that we can actually make a difference we get ideas we hear feedback from members and we're agile enough, we're small enough that we mm. can go, I can do something about that. I can make a change. I can introduce a service or I can update that service. So for me, it's never the same job that we're doing. It's forever changing. Mm. And then you can see the flow and effect where you've actually helped people and made a difference. And, and that's the beauty because being a team that's relatively small, um, you can change. And that's that's important in cyber because while many of the types of threats don't change, like phishing's pretty old now like phishing's been around but it does evolve and get better and the bad guys you know change their approach to it and the same goes with ransomware and you know the way they execute DOS surprised. attacks uh, I think like our biggest growing service is the phishing takedown service yeah I mean, phishing has been around but the way it's grown in volume and yeah. changed is 
also and you've been able to adapt yeah. yeah you've been able to adapt to that in a, in a really interesting way tell me what is it that um when we talk about the conference and mm. um, i mean it really is a very it's almost very eclectic isn't it the, the types of people we get you know um through season you know a small preview of season three of the podcast is we're going to be talking about diversity and inclusion quite a bit through the podcast you know we've we've spoken to quite a few people who are involved in the diversity and inclusion mm. through the podcast and when we go to the conference now, it's the one thing that I would notice, and someone said it to me last night at the pre-dinner drinks at the conference, was they weren't alone as a female in the room, for example. Um, yeah, I they, can't tell you, I was high-fiving Jackie from AWSM at the dinner last night. There was a queue at the women's toilet. Yeah, I had that conversation with someone who said, <laughs> this is the only thing that sucks. But it also happened at tutorials earlier in the week. And I looked, I, I stood in this queue and went, wow, this has not happened. Yeah. We are, we are getting somewhere. We're making a difference. But, you know, that's that's been the big diversity story for a few years. And it was a good one. And we had to do it. And we need to continue it. Hmm. But now that diversity is being opened up into so many other angles. We don't just have to look at gender. We need to look at ethnicity. We need to look at neurodiversity. And, you know, I mean, the Diversity and Inclusion Award winner last night, Daisy, who's just an amazing person. Love, uh, love Daisy, who... Is, you know, gets around in a wheelchair most of the time now. Um, but it's, it's a bright pink wheelchair and she's got the brightest pink hair. Like she, you know, we, it's a, there's this huge, huge spirit of, of inclusivity that's going on now. I and people don't want to hide. The dance floor and night. people don't want to hide <laughs> yeah. either. Like, yeah. you know, cybersecurity people are out there now and they're like, we don't all have to be in our hoodies in mum's basement anymore, thank goodness. You know, people are out there doing all sorts of different things in the name of cyber. You know, when I spoke to Daisy, she talked about using her marketing degree yeah. and stuff like that. And then all we those have... different skills that, you know, people haven't traditionally associated with cyber are suddenly mm. coming to the forefront. And I mean, when you think, um, you know, some of the people we've, that were at the conference this year, we had Rachel Toback who was a great speaker, but talking about, you know, she's a, she was a psychologist, I think, by trade. In fact, we had a great laugh because she and I both did undergrad degrees, which involved research and surgery on rats. And what? then we both became teachers. So we had this, you know, this parallel life. Parallel life. And it was interesting because she talks about building rapport in terms of when you're becoming, when you're a hacker trying to get past people. And I thought, well, we did a pretty good job of building rapport then. I wonder what she got out of me that I wasn't expecting oh, or yeah. vice versa. You'll be watching for a while now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to be a bit careful. But, you know, we had Rachel that spoke yesterday, um, that spoke at the conference. And we've had, um, we had Joseph Foros, who's talking about, the, you know, how to look for the future. And not necessarily predict the future, but what are the things that you can look at today that will give you some idea of the threats and things that you're going to be facing tomorrow in the world you know, we've, there's been so many different speakers, you know, and we've had the tutorials, which cover a whole bunch of different topics and things as well. I mean, it's it's a pretty broad conference. It's a very broad church we have, it's assert. Yeah, I, I really love how it's evolving and changing over years. And I, I see that trend happening in our call for presentations, you know, as we're starting to analyze those submissions. And, you know, back in the day, it was all very pure tech. Mm. Um, but I love that people are thinking differently, embracing all these different angles. And, you know, like one of the most popular tutorials this week was about imposter syndrome that's brilliant to me that we are yeah. not just going oh i need to learn these tech skills it's like all of our skills are coming in handy and that's where we need to polish everything not just mm. what our cyber technical skills are and, and it's funny because when we start looking at what was on the conference program this year um we had sessions on communication like we actually had how to write better you know and that's 
we forget that it's not all technical skills, but those soft skills are incredibly important because there's no point identifying 5,000 threats if you can't explain them to people in a way that makes a yeah. difference. Now, the second I saw that, I thought there is something that all of us can learn out of these Absolutely. sessions. Yeah, and, and that's the great part. Like, talk about inclusion. There yeah. is something that we can all learn and, and improve ourselves and make ourselves better in our industry and working together. So we're going to close this off just before we, we flip to our interview. I mean, things are a little bit different for this episode of the podcast because normally Beck's on second after our, big inter- after our main interview. But the interview with Martin McGregor is going to follow this. But I'm going to ask Beck one question. And it's the, this is the 2000, well, this is the season three question Ooh. that we're asking everybody. Thanks. Yeah. What do, you wish we, the, what do you wish you'd known 10 years ago? Funny enough, like, you know, I started at Ausset 11 years ago. So, right, what would I wish I'd known? Um, I wish I'd known what a strong community we would have. Um, you know, I've always known that there's this, you know, we've always preached collaboration and sharing and helping with each other. But I don't think I really pictured how amazing the connections would be through that. And that's what's shone for me this week is in every aspect of this conference, you know, things go wrong and there is a team of, I'd, I'd, I'd easily say 50 people that will go, how can I help? What can I do? How can, you know, and, and that happens all year round in every part of Ausert. If we're working on something, there is always people that want to help, improve, learn. Um, and so it's that community and working together. So I think everyone needs to, to take a step back and look around them and think, you know, what am I looking for? How can I help other people? And how can they help me? And we'll all be stronger together. Amazing. Thanks so much, Beck. Thank you. And now it's over to Martin McGregor. How are you doing, Martin? Very good. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So you've got this really special interest in dealing with the operational issues around mobility, essential aid, and just trying to make us all feel safer when we turn our laptops on or turn our iPhones or smartphones and tablets on. What are you actually seeing out in the world when it comes to those issues? So I think it's a really fascinating area because you're you're dealing with people, you know, people are using these devices and people are infinitely complex and, you know, we support them, you know, as people. So it's, it's a relational thing and for organizations to really do that well, they've got to appreciate that and invest in it. So the challenge is getting more difficult to support people, you know. Is that because people are getting getting more demanding about what they want or is the environment around them changing? Is it a combination of all these things? I don't know if they're getting, the, the, the users are getting more demanding. They might, they might be getting less demanding because they're becoming more autonomous. But I think it's the, the challenges of the way that people work now that are, that are difficult for technology people. So one of the things you just said in that was people are becoming more autonomous. How does that work for and against us when it, when we're talking about security? Well, so well, that's just it. So, what do they need so they can remain autonomous, and how do we support them to do that? That's the that's the the, the, the real difficult thing. It's kind of under just trying to understand what they have to achieve and getting out of the way. So we have to address security in a way that's really not obtrusive for them, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it has to be so, you know. Probably not. I don't know if it's the best word for it, but inclusive in a way, because if the the security controls and the approaches to how we manage these, you know, these the devices people use and all the software that they need, if we don't do that in a way that makes their job easier, if we put controls and that get in the way, 
it just makes them less efficient and they often find other workarounds. So we've got to we've got to try and find ways to support them that actually makes them more successful in what they do so that they get on board with the things that we're trying to do. And there's kind of an implicit challenge in that today though, isn't there? Because one of the things that we've now have more and more of that we've never had before is all these you know, bits of compliance advice and, you know, really rules and regs that we never had. You know, yeah. it probably started in 2017 when the, you know, the privacy principles began that journey. And then we've got, you know, encryption rules now and we've got the Essential 8, which puts a whole bunch of other controls in. Yeah. Or And that, I mean, the Essential 8 now on the cusp of becoming almost like a mandatory set of controls, mm. particularly, especially in government. Yeah. How, do, how do you balance that getting out of the way bit with... Yeah increased compliance and regulation so yeah that's the so that's why it's so complex and that's why it's challenging because we have to we, we need to do those things so the the risk climate is just it's a, it's a real thing you know we can't pretend that our devices and our employees that are working remotely or wherever they are that they're not at risk that they are at risk so we we need to make these things happen but the challenge is is designing systems and processes that that apply those controls but in a way that actually makes it better for end users. And I think that's the challenge. I, I, I actually think it's really possible. More than possible, I think it's actually mandatory. It's the way that we have to approach it. So whatever it might be in the, the essential aid, if there's, there's, a, there's a way to look at, you know, I think just about every control you know, in the essential aid where it can actually be better for end users. You can create a more stable environment for them and a more consistent environment where they, they're, they're ultimately less disrupted. But you, you really do need to understand how they work and and what they need to work before you can start approaching that, I think. So is that, because the traditional view of InfoSec is that it's like, it's the department of don't, you know, yeah. you can't do this, don't yeah. do that. No, you can't have that. Like that's, that's been the, the view probably until about four or five years ago, I guess. Mm. And that's been changing more recently. What are some of the practical things an InfoSec person can do to, to take though that, you know, what's becoming an increasingly rigorous compliance mm. regime mm. but make it you know user friendly mm. and you know just get the user to be able to do their job in a compliant and safe mm. and you know risk averse way mm. without sticking 27 dialogue boxes in front of them and you know making them you know dance under a full moon on the 30th of every month in order to mm. make sure they're safe mm. that kind of stuff i think you if you if you appreciate the value of or how important applications are to the people that work you know, <laughs> that maybe aren't, you know, security people, people really have a bunch of applications that they, that they is important for their, for their job. And we have to be pragmatic about that. So I don't think we should impose views on the way that people work too much. We, we need to understand what they're doing and applications on, you know, end user devices is just such a key area of, of misunderstanding and opportunity as well, because if we can understand the what applications people use, whether they might be you know thick applications on the client or the SaaS applications, and we can control those and make them available to them, we we actually are enabling them in a great way. If we can provision those applications to them, you know, as soon as they log onto a device, for example, they can just start working. It's great for the end user; they don't have to think about okay, this might be missing. They might not have to worry about collaboration issues between you know, the version that they might have and a different version a colleague might have or a, or a partner. If we can manage those applications for them, keep them up to date, all that sort of stuff, for the end user, it's actually a fantastic outcome. 
But what we get to do on the back of that is there's a whole bunch of compliance things that we can then achieve. If we manage applications well, we can start looking at taking away local privilege on the devices like local admin. We can start thinking about maybe implementing things like allow listing because we know what, what's out there. And so it's a great opportunity just, just focusing on applications, managing applications well for end users, but then we get great compliance and security outcomes as well. And what's interesting in that is that a lot of what you're talking about is not, it's implemented technically, mm. but it's not a technical problem that you're solving. You're actually solving a people problem. Is that one of the things that you're seeing now that, you know, security professionals have got to get, you know, we've got to get better at the people stuff. Yeah. You know, we're, you know we've, we, you and I have both spent a lot of time around information security professional, professionals. So we know that they know their stuff. Mm. Like you walk into a room full of information security professionals, you'll know what order all the ones and zeros are going to line up on everything. Like it's, yeah. you know, they're, they're really fixed on understanding all that technical stuff. Mm. Is that the, the gap that they're now trying to bridge is actually thinking about the people and process stuff? Like they've got the technology bit of that, that you know, that triangle, right? Mm. Is it the people process stuff now that they've got to catch up with and learn better? I, I, yeah, I think so. The closer that we can be to, to, to end users, the better, I think. The more that we can understand the way that they need to work, the better. And if we can, if we can sort of sneak insecurity, so if we think about how we can actually make them you know, in a, put them in a better operational hmm. place, we will increase the efficiency of the entire organization. You know, if, if they can work, they can get their job done to a, you know, a, a greater degree without interruption. It really does improve the whole organization. And for the, the business, you know, they're not really concerned about maybe the security controls that we're, we're, we're trying to achieve at the same time. But if we, you know, do manage this properly, there, there is an opportunity for us to Think about okay, if we if we take control of this area and we set up you know a user the way that we need to, and we understand them, well, what sort of controls can I put around them or guardrails around what they do, so that you know, it's it's almost like the the least privilege conversation. What do they what what do they not need to do that we can, you know, remove off the table and reduce the you know the the, the potential for exploits. Hmm. I want to think about a really practical example because. You know, I've worked around this long enough to remember when I had to carry a key fob that gave me a six-digit number so that I could log into the VPN so that I could get into the system and then re-log in again and all that sort of stuff. Mm. I mean, authentication and passwords and user identities, they still remain a both a, a significant threat vector for the, for the threat actors, mm. but they're also a significant pain in the butt for users. And it's one of those things that's very specifically addressed inside the Essential 8 and NIST and, you know, any set of security guidelines yeah. now has something around user authentication. How do we bridge that gap where we make, say, for example, just taking that very practical example of how do we do user authentication better for today's world? This is a fantastic example of an area where if you manage identity properly and you allow a user to authenticate once and then you have a single sign-on between all your applications you know you you manage the identity of all, all of the applications and all the SaaS services you subscribe to you pay the extra dollars unfortunately to get the single sign-on options from an end user perspective it just makes their life easier and onboarding a person in, an, in a company makes them much more it's much easier for them to become operational and get to work Great for the end users, great for the business, but phenomenal for security. Hmm. 
But the, the challenge in that, of course, is that if I go and buy you know, a SaaS service today or I buy an application that's been developed in the last two or three years, the ability to do that is probably there. Even if, even if I have to pay a little bit extra for it, I can get it. Yeah. But unfortunately, we have this thing called old stuff yeah. that doesn't necessarily play well. Yeah. How do we you know, bring businesses along and how do, we, you know, how do we actually do that in a practical sense and manage the legacy and the older stuff? Yeah, well, I think the, the the reality of is this re- reality of it is there's no such thing as greenfields. There's it just it's not a thing. The businesses are messy, and the technology that they have it is messy. And we wouldn't have cybercrime if it wasn't as messy as it is. So you have to you have to deal with that mess, and you have to make compromises. I think ultimately, you have to think about what you you know. Perhaps there's some app that's really important to the business. How do I how do I how do I get around that requirement? So that they can they can work effectively, but I can still make it easy for for the end user. I don't think just saying, "Well, we can't use these apps anymore," is this is the solution because they're not modern enough to, to work in you know in this this nirvana, because you know that that just isn't feasible and ultimately just makes end users less productive. So we have to live with in a world of compromise. That might just mean mean you know logging better for those applications. Hmm. Finding, finding other controls, you know, complementary controls, you know, to, to reduce the risk. And, and that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because sometimes when someone says, you know, there's an item in the Essential 8 that says we must have, you know, multi-factor authentication. Yeah. And you go, well, hang on, the application that we depend on to run the business can't let us do multi-factor authentication. Yeah. So you sit there and go, right, well, I'm going to be non-compliant at the top line. Yeah. But what do I do around that? And that's really what you're talking about is saying, well, if I can't do multi-factor, how do I do other stuff to ensure that environment is safe and that that yeah. identity is that identity? And that's what I, I guess you're starting to talk about using heuristic things like location of the person logging in, device that they're using and all that. Is that the kind of yeah, thing you're talking even, about? even just make, making sure it's the latest version of the app, you know, being concerned about, you know, are there vulnerabilities in that application? Maybe we talk to the vendor. What, what are the other things that we can do? Hmm. Uh, because ultimately the business has to run and if we don't have a business we don't you know none of this thing none, none of, of this it thing exactly so <laughs> how do we how do we make the business successful and use our, our nous as technology people to give the business an advantage but at the same time do something that's really important for businesses these days which is is, is try to consider the security risks and minimize that hmm. but you, the, the, the most important thing is the business has to be operational and it still has to keep going yeah. forward. So obviously the last few years, we had this very slow transition that seemed to be happening with people working a little bit more remotely and you know we had people starting to do a bit more BYOD and mm. there seemed to be a lot more device flexibility starting to permeate organisations. Mm. But then we had this thing at the beginning of 2020 that kind of just put the pedal right down to the metal and yeah. made us accelerate really quick, quickly mm. towards work from home and remote working and all those sorts mm. of arrangements. A lot of organizations did stuff really quick to get their workforces operational so yeah. that they could work from home and they yeah. could you know, potentially not have to travel in from rural areas or whatever. Mm. How, have, how have we now, are we now playing catch up? Do you find that there's there's a there's a pretty is there a long tail of that catch up to get things right and perhaps in your experience what have been some of the the biggest issues that people created through that rapid transition and what are some of the things they've done to get you know to overcome those? Well, I, I think it was ultimately a good thing because what I I've noticed over the last twenty years or so is 
we probably haven't respected the end user device in businesses as much as we used to. So we haven't been concerned about how well we manage them. You know, can a can a user just get you know onto the thing and, and working with with you know little interaction with IT? Ideas like that just became less and less popular. And I, I my observation was that this the state of end user devices has just become worse over time. It's more 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 and more appalling because the the value hasn't been appreciated. I think people lost sight of why we actually gave computers to employees in the first place. Wasn't it just to make Microsoft rich? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, Windows ninety five. Yeah, for everybody. It's so yeah, we we yeah that 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 was really the what what I've noticed is that with twenty twenty and COVID, it was like this massive education piece for the whole world. Really, where they thought. Where they realise if our users can't get operational on the, on this device, our business can't function. It was a real test for them, and we just hadn't seen innovation in the last twenty years in this this area. But all of a sudden, we started to see innovation and people coming up with with new solutions for for onboarding people remotely, for provisioning things to them remotely, getting visibility of them remotely, mm-hmm. and. You know, that's 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 really a new thing in this space because the the technology is still very much land based, and uh, you know, kind and of the, like ghost over the over the network. And it's kind of interesting. I was just thinking, oh my goodness, how many hours I spent watching Norton Ghost's Progress Bar moving across multiple <laughs> screens back in the old days. But I was just thinking, there's the other angle to that. Of course, is that's a pendulum that swings. It's like if you've worked in IT as long as we have, you know, the pendulum swings back and forth, and we we go from. Mm. I remember mainframes mm-hmm. and then we went pc on every desktop mm. and then we swung now we swung back towards the cloud which is kind of like a mainframe of centralized computing but it's not inside the server room it's out there somewhere in the ether things like vdi and yeah and all that yeah. and we have these interim solutions like vdi which is kind of like having the thing on your desk but it's over there and mm. you know we've had all these you know all these things that have swung back and forth mm. and i think you've kind of described the same thing with end user devices is when we started putting pcs on desktops back in the 90s mm we go, oh, that's a really important device. We better manage it really well because, you know, it's a $2,000 asset sitting on a <laughs> yeah. desk, which when $2,000 yeah. was worth 10000 of today's dollars, yeah. you know, it was a big deal. Yeah. Whereas now we've swung it back the other way. We, you know, we swung to, it's like a pencil. You know, mm. it's, you know, computers were stationary. And I've been guilty of that as a manager in IT environment saying, mm. can we just not mandate that everyone has to have the same model pencil? Like no one makes me buy the same biro from yeah. the stationer. Yeah. And now we're swinging back the other one saying, well, hang on, these things are actually a little bit special. We've totally. got to do something about it. Is that the... Yeah, it's the, funny. Yeah. It's it, even, yeah, you know, going back to the, the 90s, like you're describing, it, not even when a company adopted computers was it a thing where everybody can, got a computer. It was still, you had to make a business case. Yeah. Well, this person, they do this job, whatever it might be. If they had a computer, they could do this, they could do this. And then the business would have to go, oh, Okay, it's a lot of money, but I, I hear you. That's gonna yeah. <laughs> that's gonna make things better. And now it's just they're ubiquitous. We just give them mm. to every employee. And we don't necessarily think about it. We just it's just expected. I think that's that's you know when I think about device management today, that's been that's the overwhelming change, isn't it? That we've suddenly realised these things are actually a little bit special and important, and yeah. we're now affording it that attention through you know device management tools and. Mm thinking about things like user authentication and thinking about all the stuff around even device authentication, knowing what you have. Yeah. You know, if I had a buck for every person that sat, you know, across this microphone and said, step one of everything is know what you got. 
you know, yeah, I'd be yeah. retired. You know, well and truly retired in the Bahamas on my own island. Because that's the thing. Like, people don't actually know what they've got because yeah. we forgot how important these devices are. So true. So true. So the last question we're asking everyone in this season's podcast is to give a shout out to their cybersecurity superhero. So I, am, I know, I think you've got someone already in mind that you do want mm. to mention. And one thing that we're doing is sometimes these people aren't people that are out in the, and are well known. So a lot of the people have mentioned mentors and leaders and advisors that no one would have ever have heard of. So it's a great opportunity to mm. give a shout out to people that maybe no one's ever heard of. And, you know, just to give them that acknowledgement that they've been important in your career. So mm. who do you want to throw out there? Uh, so he's a, a fantastic gentleman called Brad Bush. So I used, I used to work at William Hill. I was head of security there. And it was a it was a new kind of role for me. It was my first job where I had security in my title. I've been doing security you know, my whole career, but it's my first proper security role. And I was just very eager to make a big impact. It's the first time I'd, I'd, I'd taken a job for a company. I was a consultant for 20 something years. And everyone you know that's listening to this will know the challenges of trying to convince a business of what we see, you know, the concerns that we see. And, you know, even the stuff that we're talking about, these security controls, I, I deeply believe that we can do these things in a way that improves the business and makes the business a, a more reliable, safer, more efficient business. So I was just absolutely committed to that that goal, but struggling. I was finding it really hard to, to communicate to the business. And I, I went and saw a debate one day, a cybersecurity debate. And there was this person in the audience who asked a couple of questions that were just so on point and so articulate. And being articulate is something I struggle with. <laughs> so I was just so impressed with his questions. And then it wasn't just me, the whole room was. And there was, there was two people on stage debating, but everybody just started asking Brad questions, including the people on stage. <laughs> and he, he was just so humble, but had so much knowledge. And, and I thought, my God, that's the sort of thing that I need. So I went up to him straight afterwards and I said, you know, and this is the first time and probably the only time I've ever done something like this. I said, I want to do what you do somehow, someday. Can you please mentor me? Can you please help me? And he just became someone that was more than a mentor. He was a, just, he's become a dear friend and he was just incredibly supportive. He you know, had a big portfolio, a lot of things on his, his table, but he always made time for me. And we used to regularly meet up for coffees and I just dump all my problems on him. But that still continued and he's, he's helped me go from someone that was a, you know, an, a consultant, an employee to now I've started my own businesses and in, in, in cybersecurity and he's been you know, helping me the whole way. So he's, he's an angel to me and I, and I love him very much. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Martin. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow, the OzCert podcast. And thanks to Martin McGregor and to Beck. We'll be back next month with the first episode of Season 3 of Share Today, Save Tomorrow with even more guests and a look into the Australian cybersecurity scene. If you want to know more about OzCert, be sure to visit ozcert.org.au.